Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of this conversation, and I am pleased to be speaking with David G. Garcia, author of Strategies of Segregation, Race, Residence, and the Struggle for Educational Equality, published by the University of California Press in 2018. Dr. Garcia is Associate Professor in the Graduate School of Education and Information Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles. His teaching and research interests examine the interconnectivity of history and education, focusing on local educational histories of Mexican-Americans. He is the author of several articles and book chapters that have been published in prestigious uh, journals and, and collective works like the History of Education Quarterly, Harvard Educational Review, and the Handbook of Latinos in Education, just to name a few. His 2018 book, which we will be discussing today, Strategies of Segregation, was given the 2019 Critics' Choice Book Award by the American Educational Studies Association and a 2019 Honorable Mention for the New Scholars Book Award by the American Educational Research Association. Hello, David, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Hi, David. Thank you for having me. (laughs) All right. Definitely glad that we've been able to uh, connect. I've been very excited about your book uh, since it came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of it, as, as I think I've shared with you, is my own connection uh, to the place that you're writing about, which is Oxnard. I was born in Oxnard and uh, raised there until I was about the age of 10, and then my family moved to San Diego. But uh, a lot of my, my family history, particularly my mom, my grandmother, is you know tied to Oxnard prior to our move. So I was very excited to see uh, this book, and it's it's incredibly important. Uh, so I'd like to just start today by asking you about Oxnard itself, and more directly, what does the history of Oxnard and the history of racial segregation in Oxnard, what does this tell us that we don't already know? Or what does this add to the conversation of racial segregation in the United States? Sure. So... <clears throat> So you are probably then familiar with some of the school names that I mentioned in the book since you were uh, you went to school here, right, till the age of 10? Very much so. And and I think, I can't remember if I shared with you or not, but my parents actually taught in a couple of the schools that, that you write about later on in the book. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Oxnard, as um, I mentioned in the book, is essentially starts as a company town. It's uh, incorporated in 1903, and before that, there was a lot of recruitment of labor, particularly Japanese labor and Mexican labor. And it's a sugar beet town. It's an agricultural town to this very day, though it's a sort of a combination between the urban and rural, what Kerry McWilliams called a rural or urban, urban community. Uh, To this day, you see that because there's still a lot of agriculture here. What that does is that it creates a need for labor. 
At some point, Oxnard in the 1950s had the largest bracero camp in the nation. And as part of that program, that's how my dad was recruited to come work in Oxnard. And essentially is, is how my family ends up in Oxnard. I was raised in Oxnard since age two, and I attended schools here. And I continue to live in Oxnard. And in Oxnard, it's uh, what what I feel that makes it unique, but also what makes it similar to other places is the way that there was this, on the one hand, a need for this agricultural labor and a tension about whether how are we going to educate, if at all, those uh the the children of these laborers and what and if we and if they're going to give them some kind of education what kind of education is that going to be and so oxnard tells us a lot about how the school board and what i refer to as the white architects of mexican-american education and i'm drawing that from william Watkins' work uh that term but i adapted to to uh the situation in Oxnard, it's basically we're li- they're going, they're having these discussions, and it's all relevant in the pri- it's all shown in the primary documents, the school board minutes about what what do we do with these Mexican kids? And and as I was going through the primary documents and the different archival sources, I was looking for how they were talking about Japanese, African American and Mexican kids and other students of color. One of the things that, that the study reveals is that the, the white architects established at least four different strategies about how to segregate Mexican children. And that's where the title of the book comes from. Uh, the, first, the first of those being that they establish a racial hierarchy, of course, with whites and white students at the top of that hierarchy. Uh, and Mexicans uh, uh, being at the bottom. Uh, The second one, that they built an interconnection between residential and school segregation. A lot of studies look at residential segregation, but they look at it separately from school segregation. And And what I'm doing in my book is that I'm looking at it, how they interconnect. Second, most of those studies look at uh, residential segregation in terms of African-Americans. And here I am looking at it, at how it affected uh, Mexican, the Mexican-American population. And third, they, constru- they constructed a school within a school model of segregation. Most of the literature looks at uh, the segregation of Mexican kids in which they were put into an entirely different building, a different structure. And in Oxnard, up until 1940, there's only three elementary schools. And so there's no other separate Mexican school, although they did make efforts to create one. In the meantime, what they were doing is that they were segregating them within the school. So oftentimes Mexican students would be put, would be on the same campus, but in a different um, sort of uh, classroom, all in one classroom, uh, relegated to a certain part of the playground. One of my interviewees talks about a white line being out in the playground and how they couldn't cross that. And 
And so these are different ways that, that the that the teachers, principals, and the school board, you know, went about uh, segregating Mexican children. And then finally, the fourth strategy was that to omit any rationale for segregating Mexican children, they didn't document why specifically they wanted to segregate them. Uh, it was um, understood that they would. In Oxnard, it wasn't a matter of whether they were going to segregate Mexican children. The question was about how do we do that effectively and permanently. So I think those are some those are some of the ways that I'm contributing to the existing existing literature. And when we look at the as Oxnard as a vehicle to talk about these broader issues of school segregation, about racial covenants, of segregation within and beyond schools. The more studies that come out of different communities, we can learn what is this, what is different, uh, what is particular to each community, but uh, but also what is different from you know location to location. And I think that's going to expand our knowledge of of this area of study. Definitely, um, and thank you for providing that you know overview. Uh, particularly with that real, the crux of the book, um, describing those four strategies. And we'll get into some of those in a little bit more detail. I wanted to begin um, before going, or, you know, connected to that. You mentioned um, your use of the term white architects. And um, I think one of the things that, you know, a, a book like yours does and the way that it's written, it's using, it's kind of theorizing, uh, you know, on the intentionality of segregation that's really breaking down the um, you know clear uh, distinction, if you will, between de jure and de facto um, segregation, right? And that uh, when segregation has often been discussed, or at least as it's understood outside of academics, but uh, you know even there's there's probably some misinformation and confusion within academia. But when people hear the term segregation, right, they typically are thinking that that de jure aspect of it, right, the the segregation is enforced by law, and you're really bringing those two in conversation, right, and and really blurring the lines, so to speak, and showing that it's it's not so clear, right. There wasn't just this clear distinction in regards to that, uh, what was legal and what was not. And so your your book, I see it as you know part of that contributing to uh, that body of scholarship that has really broken down, you know that. Uh, you know, those kind of distinctions and even so-called that myth, right? The, the myth that de facto segregation was somehow, that is segregation by practice, by individual practices was, you know, somehow accidental or not as intentional. And so you do that through, you know, by discussing uh, and using that this theory of, of the white architect. So can you expand on that by talking a bit more? Give us an example of, of who were these architects that intentionally, right, developed and led the development of policy to segregate Mexicans, uh, both in housing and education in Oxnard. Sure. So, so what's interesting is that, unlike William Watkins, he's mostly talking about a, a philanthropist who designed uh, the education for African Americans uh, in Oxnard. These are ordinary people. The, as I mentioned, it's principals, it's teachers, it's. Uh, uh, the city, the city council, and the school board. These were essentially in uh, white, uh, white folks that were the power brokers in Oxnard. Uh, even the the PTA. Uh, they were constantly in conversation about 
what are the best ways to uh, to segregate Mexican children? And so these are ordinary people that had racial covenants restrictions on their homes. So if they wanted to keep the neighborhood segregated and they understood very clearly that the railroad tracks, which divided the city between East and West, that Mexicans were by design supposed to be near the factory, near the sugar beet factory to have an accessible labor pool there and it's no coincidence that La Colonia is, you know, that, that it develops there right next to the factory on, on the east side of the city. And the tracks serve as the, as the color line, what Du Bois would call the, the color line. So they went about de- designing the city and the schools to be placed in very specific locations. And this came at the request of white parents. This came at the request of, of teachers who were involved, who actually the teachers, the, the everyday teachers came up with the different plans of how to segregate Mexican children. So they, there was uh, the white community in Oxford that had a stake in all this. And this is all noted in the historical record for people to look up and see. Uh, how they had these discussions. These, uh, I, me- I as I mentioned, the the board, uh, white residents came to the board meetings complaining that they were seeing Mexican kids at their at their school, and they would demand, "Why can't a school be um, built on their side of this of the neighborhood of theirs in, in their neighborhood?" And so. <clears throat> When I talk about that interconnection is that all these these communities, you know, these different uh, stakeholders are in conversation at different levels of, of power within the city. And Richard B. Haydock, when the city's incorporated in 1903, he's Oxnard's first mayor. He's also a teacher in the district. He becomes uh, a superintendent of schools. So he he has a lot of power and a lot of uh and deciding where, what location schools will, would be built, uh, including what names they're going to carry, including his own. And so they're making these these uh, connections. So you're right. The, the difference between de jure and de facto line gets blurred because on the one hand, it's not court ordered or or it's not by law, but we looked at that the way that they wrote their policies uh, within and beyond schools in the city of Oxnard, they're in charge of that. They have the power to draw the district lines, as one example. And and to move Mexican kids constantly between the three different elementary schools that were available. So they have that power to enact that policy. I always uh, tell my students, my undergraduate students that, you know, it's not enough to have sort of these prejudicial racist ideas. It's who has the power to actually put them into action. And, and, you know, and that's what what makes a, a, you know, the difference. And then how, then the consequences that we continue to see to this day. Yeah, no, I agree entirely. Then that's, you know, the, 
you, you mentioned the teaching of, of undergraduates. It's one of the things, particularly in my my American uh, history survey courses, that I strive is to help them to you know see the decision making process right functioning at various levels of society. You know, as you mentioned, everything from local you know to just ordinary folk members of the PTA to you know principals to you know school board officials to all sorts of things homeowners associations that uh, you know these are all decisions right that those people enacted that that led to right the segregation of uh, you know the United States in and of itself and this link between residential and educational segregation is you know something that is very clear that is you know the jurisprudence the, the court cases have documented this throughout the country. But, uh, you know, still, it, it remains, at least in, I think, in the American kind of memory, collective memory, something that is not so clearly understood. And I appreciate how well you document this. And as you mentioned, you know, that, that this is all in the historical record, right? This is not necessarily, it's, it's not that it hasn't been, it wasn't recorded, it was recorded. So you referred to local newspapers throughout Oxnard, the school board minutes, what were some of the other other court cases? What were some of the other archival records you used uh, to document um, your your history here? Well, I was going to say even the newspapers, just to back up to what you were saying earlier, the newspapers, the publishers themselves, they had a stake in the racial covenants. Because when I started to look up those names of, you know, who were the publishers as the paper changes names and ownership over time, they had racial communist restrictions on their own properties. And it's similar to the teachers. So, you know, going back to how, how do I incorporate this into a classroom is that we talk about how these ideas, if you don't want Mexicans as neighbors, you, the teachers must bring that into the classroom when they're teaching them. That that you know that idea of how what that Mexicans are are essentially second class citizens and how do you then educate them? So if you have that in your personal life and your personal dealings, you can't say that you're not going to bring that into your teaching when you see a group uh, a classroom of Mexican kids that you know you are often forced to teach because teachers weren't volunteering to teach the Mexican children. Well, so those ideas are again you know they're brought in. And in fact, it was the teachers that ultimately came up with uh, the segregation plan when they couldn't fit them. Uh, they, they were trying to create Haydock, the sole Mexican school, and there was protest by the residents of that neighborhood, like, hey, we don't want the Mexican kids here. And so they, the board had to come up with a different plan. And one of the challenges was is that Mexican kids outnumbered white kids two to one even three to one, uh, depending on the year. And so they couldn't fit the Mexican children in, into one structure. And the teachers ultimately came up with the plan, well, this is what we'll do. We'll, put, we'll segregate them to the extent that we can, and we'll take a few of the brightest, cleanest Mexican children and put them in to the white classes. And oftentimes that also meant sitting in the back of that class. So it was the teachers that have that idea, you know, just to make that connection further of how if in their private lives they have these uh, racial covenants, they're also bringing that into the classroom on an everyday basis. Exactly. Um, But but you were asking me, can you can you um, 
with the, the question, I got a little sidetracked. Can you ask me that question uh, you had before? Well, what I wanted to do, what your comment, you know, makes me think of, because you're kind of trying to break down these, um, you know, interconnections uh, between residential and, and school segregation, right, to really show the underpinning of this intentionality. So what you were just discussing is is one of those, right, four key strategies that you're discussing, right, that interconnection between residential and school segregation, right, people wanting or, or you know, existing within a a social environment uh, that is already segregated residentially and then also bringing those ideas right into how uh, public policy and school policy should handle right a multi-ethnic or multi-racial population in of itself mm -hmm. and so you and use you, a, you had so, asked about the the different sources oh yes yes the archives yes, that, that's what we were uh, you were asking um thank you for that question because Yes, I look at newspapers, board minutes. I looked at the, you know, ultimately the, the book culminates in the Soria versus the Oxnard Board of Trustees uh, de desegregation case. So I looked at those um, uh, those documents as well from the case. Uh, but what I feel in, in a lot of the response that I've been getting from the book, the positive response is it's the oral histories that really bring this uh, book and and the and the archival material to life. I conducted almost sixty or a little over sixty um, oral history interviews, or or I I drew from existing uh, interviews uh, that were at the Library of Congress, for example, about uh, residents of Oxnard, and I looked at a multi generational uh, group of people. Uh, in other words, students that attended schools in the thirties, forties, and fifties. And so I asked them to reflect on some of their schooling experiences, and I try to uh, put those, you know, in every chapter of the book. And I kind of end with with that, or if not, begin with with a clip from a from an ex excerpt from an interview. And I think that's what really makes this uh, a powerful book, and why it's getting you know these awards and recognition because it really it's very difficult for historians that are looking at the 30s and 40s to find interviews that they conducted themselves. And I was very fortunate to find folks that were still around and still had very vivid memories of their schooling experiences, in part because they were very harsh uh, memories, uh, very hurtful memories of the punishment that they that they, you know, were dealt because they spoke Spanish, for example. And so I think that the, the interviews is a source that I never would have captured from those primary documents, from the, those records, because while the school board minutes, for example, talk about the need to segregate Mexican children and how to do it and, you know, put, put them in the, in in a separate uh, classroom or they never talk about the experiences that these children were, were facing. Those voices are not there. So how did racism feel on an everyday basis? How did that segregation feel on a, on the ground when these children were having to uh, go to school and be separated at recess? They even, uh, they even had staggered release times where the white kids were let out 10 minutes 
uh, before the Mexican kids at the end of the school day in order to keep um, uh, keep them separate, you know, social separation, uh, even beyond the school. So they 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 never, um, you know, the, the minutes in the primary documents would never have captured those stories. And I was very fortunate that these oral history interviews were able to add a whole nother, uh, very rich layer to to my examination of this uh, history. I'm, I'm very glad that you brought that up. It, it's something that um, I've experienced in my own research, uh, which overlaps quite a bit with yours, just in a different part of Southern California. But you're so right. And I think particularly the perspective that you're bringing here is, you know, sometimes these archival documents, whether they are court transcripts, whether they're um, school board minutes, may capture in part, right, the voice um, uh, or names, right, of uh, Mexican-Americans and, and other underrepresented historical actors. But it's not, those those documents are not, uh, don't, don't center on their voices and they don't center on their experiences, right? Their voices aren't driving that narrative and that document itself. And so uh, you're so you're so right on, you know, in saying that the importance, right, of oral history is to really center, right, the narrative on these people who experienced, you know, this history that isn't recorded, that isn't captured, right, through that perspective in, in the archives. So thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, we've talked in, you've given some examples already, I think, of the, the first of the two uh, strategies of segregation uh, that you, you know, cover and, and carry out throughout your book, that is the establishing of racial hierarchy, uh, which is really kind of that, that um, designing schools to really serve whites, um, you know, over Mexican-Americans, then their interconnection between residential and school segregation, which is that you, you use this quotes, the, the strategic underdevelopment of both neighborhoods like La Colonia, uh, as well as um, Mexican schools. I'm wondering, one of the really novel concepts, at least for me in reading this, um, was this school within a school model of, of racial separation, which you discussed a little before, but I was wondering if you could elaborate on to, to give us more details of how did that function in, in Oxnard? Because again, our, our traditional understandings of segregation are more of you know, separate schools, separate neighborhoods. And so while you do have you know, some of that, there's also this different model of you know segregating kids within a school can you explain expand on that a bit more sure so as i had mentioned you know a lot of the literature the existing literature from different lo uh, locations in texas and uh you know what uh, gilbert gonzalez was has looked at in his own work guadalupe san miguel they do they there's a the pattern of a separate school for mexicans and as I was saying in Oxnard, what it what it tells us is something uh, a little bit different, though, because they're uh, up until 1940, there's essentially three elementary schools. They're all on on the west side, the white part of of, of town, that again is maintained white by racial covenant. So all this is connected. Um, as more and more Mexican kids are attending school, in part because of the recruitment of, of labor, um, they, they are running out of space. They don't have uh, a separate Mexican school, so they, they have to look for other ways of segregating 
the Mexican kids. And at this time, before 1940, we're primarily primarily looking at Mexican and some Asian kids, some Japanese and Asian kids. What is interesting about that component um, is that the Asian kids are allowed into the white classes. So that's where the racial hierarchy also comes in for me. At least in school, though Asian, uh, Japanese, and Chinese children and communities face discrimination like other uh, communities of color, in school, that model minority myth uh, that often people trace to the you know 1960s in Oxford, it's happening much earlier, uh, you know, um, because at least as schools are concerned, they're allowed into the white classes. They are seen as model students by Richard B. Haydock, the superintendent of, of the schools. Um, so they're trying to figure out how do we divide up? And, and so they oftentimes, the, you know, the, if you look at um, the cover of the book is the segregated Mexican class. That, that building that they're in is basically a shack that was put on the same grounds as Roosevelt Elementary School, but it was in the back of it. It was um, a, a building in, that was separate, but yet on the same ground. So if you think about, a, you know, maybe perhaps in the morning as children are arriving to school, it may look like a diverse school. There's white kids, there's Asian kids, there's Mexican kids going into the school. But once they get into the school, they're going into entirely different classrooms. And I and I, as I said, the Asian kids were going into the white classes with the uh, with the uh, with the white children, and that you know that doesn't just mean okay they're being segregated, but it also means an inferior education for Mexican children. It means that the they're not expected by their own teachers to go beyond fourth grade, sixth grade. Definitely by seventh grade, seventh grade, they weren't. Ex- uh, you weren't expected to see Mexican kids to go beyond those grades. The expectation was that they were going to go work in the fields, and because, as I mentioned at the start, Oxnard it was very agricultural, so that was what they were expected to do. So it was essentially learning of English so that they can communicate with their boss, but then continue to work in the fields. Um, and so that's that's a very different educational experience that white children are having in Oxnard schools and is very, also very different to what the Japanese and Chinese children are having in Oxnard schools. Right. And, and that connection between labor is, again, such a, a common theme in those that study, um, I mean, in the history of racial segregation. For, to many that are you know, reading this, it may be more, again, um, knowledgeable about or or have heard more about the segregation of African-Americans in the South, the rise of Jim Crow. So a lot of this is going to probably sound familiar to them. But then you have these little tweaks, right, as well, that that show the kind of, you know, local adjustments or, uh, you know, particularities that are operating in places like Oxnard and, uh, and etc. I mean, my parents, who I, who I have referenced, you know, taught at, you know, some of these schools, uh, particularly the Rose Avenue schools, and then several others. My mother taught in Driffle. Uh, they taught at Kamala eventually. Uh, I went to Kamala myself before we moved to um, uh, Chula Vista, California uh, when I was younger. But my parents mentioned that, that so they started teaching in these schools just after the Soria case. And um, 
you know, when they're, and we'll get to that in a sec, when they're, they're actually trying to institute integration more forcefully, uh, but they would have, you know, their children, their, their students immediately after school is out would just run over, run out, you know, side hop the fence. And, you know, on the other side of the fence, you know, were the strawberry fields and they would join their, their parents in the fields, even in the early to mid seventies. And they were still picking, you know, uh, at the end of school. And so that, I mean, the location of these schools, um, again, that, that still dependence upon their parents as labor, the expectation, as you were referring to that inferior education, right, that their children would fill, right. The, you know, their jobs, right. In the, um, you know, lower tiers of, of the uh, labor sector, particularly in agriculture, was was an expect- expectation that was actually uh, ingrained in the way that they organized, they structured the schools, as you mentioned, the the times they began. I mean, in Orange County, which is was my my more specialty, they would they would adjust it so that the kids could get out of school a little earlier, right, uh, or actually a bit earlier, usually around you know, noon or so. And this is in the, the 1920s, 1930s. And they're going to go join their parents in the field. And then in some schedules, they'd come back to school later on. So uh, again, just that interconnection and that structure around the, the need for labor and servicing uh, the local agribusiness economy was just crucial. Right. No, no. And in, in, you know, in particular, uh, of for the, you know, Mexicans or Mexican-Americans that, you know, often children would start school uh, in August after, after the harvest, right? So the the these are I, I think that's one of the main you know premises of of the book is to look at how all this is interconnected, and that education is not a on the periphery, but that the way the schools were run is in some ways the way also the rest of the city was run. So it's not necessarily that you know one is respond that that it's the city is segregated. Therefore, the schools are. But part of what I'm arguing is that, no, actually, the the schools are segregated, and therefore the um, the city is as well. You know, so it's it's kind of like what came first. You know. <laughs> um. By the way, I also went to Kamala. Oh no way, huh? Yes. <laughs> so I would have gone there. I think I I went there in the uh, third grade, which was probably around like. 86 or 87 something around there I'm, I'm not getting my dates exact right but we we left oxnard in in 89 uh, i think we completed our move in 90 but my dad had already started working in in and um Chula Vista then but but yeah so we were we usually went to the schools that my uh my parents taught at so i think my mother was teaching at kamala at the time and that's why i went to kamala for that actually it was actually his fourth grade i remember not third grade and then uh yeah, a couple other schools, uh, and actually, my dad was a was a assistant principal at Haydock Middle School, which we'll we'll talk about at the end because there's some important developments later um, in regards to the name of that school. So before we get to there, I just wanted to bring up one of the other strategies um, that that you um, that you talk about, which is well, it's not so much the strategy, but um, more of um, it kind of comes out of that last one. The school board admits this rationale for segregation, right? Um, never really uh, mentioning a, a hardcore rationale for it. So that was the, the four strategies that you bring up. But really the one thing I wanted you to uh, comment on is so much of this history, and as when I teach it to students, particularly undergraduates, 
when I teach about the history of right, racial discrimination and segregation, et cetera, uh, the thing that I try to get across to them is that this is not just a history, of course, that happened to minority or underrepresented populations, right? But that these people responded, right? African-Americans, uh, Latinos and Chicanos, Asian-Americans, uh, Native indigenous folk, right? They were not passive, um, you know, kind of... Uh, Right, just participants or or actors in this kid, but they responded to their treatment. and And the Soria case is is kind of how you end the book. You you start it and the end it with the Soria case. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk about that. Talk about uh, what you you bring up that the shared struggle um, that uh, African Americans and and Mexican Americans have in Oxnard, where they respond to these conditions, uh, and what does that look like in Oxnard? Right. And and it's not just in in terms of a, a legal challenge in court, uh, where I end um, the book with chapter six on that case, but what I'm pointing out throughout the book from the very beginning, there's always resistance. Yes, parents are resisting the segregation of their children because they understand that being in the all Mexican class means an inferior education. So very early on, there's I have an example of the Carballo family who whose children uh, were being segregated uh, into the Mexican uh, classroom. And because they're a family of means, you know, they have uh, the rich. uh, The dad has, uh, you know, businesses in Oxnard. He's well known. He's uh, well regarded. Uh, He has access to an attorney. And when the board is trying to segregate his son, Richard, for example, and they get the notice that he's going to be in the Mexican class, he hires an attorney uh, by the name of Hathaway, which I believe um, there's an elementary school named after after him in Oxford, Julian Hathaway. And we see this uh, exchange uh, in the school board minutes where where. Attorney Hathaway is saying, I'm here representing the Carballo family. And he himself, as an attorney representing the Carballo, says, I'm in favor of segregation. Don't get me wrong. But essentially, he's saying that he's right now, he's my client. And, you know, how can we fix this? (laughs) Um, And so what is interesting um, is that I was, you know, so I see this story come up in the minutes and I'm looking all over Oxnard trying to track down this Carballo family. Long story short, they live across the street from me. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I was able to interview Richard Carballo, who was the student and whose parents, you know, had threatened to sue the school district. And this is happening in the 1930s. So that's just one example right away of how the community is responding. Um but they're also the children respond too because I, I mentioned Antonia Arguelles, uh in very early on and kind of throughout the book because her story is just so inspirational. She told me this very powerful story of how one day she said something in Spanish and the teacher heard her and and asked her, "Can you pick up that rock and draw a circle in the dirt?" So she does that. She goes, now I want you to stand in in the middle of that circle and stay there until you stop speaking Spanish. And she said, then all the kids from 
where they were out on the playground, you know, that uh, they came by and they looked at her as if she was on display. And she just goes on to express the shame and the humiliation that she felt. And she said, you think I've done away with, with the world? And all I said was something in Spanish. Um, but she, you know, she, and, you know, and, and I'm interviewing her in uh, 2010. At that point, she's, uh, I believe, around 80 years old or so. I may be off here. And she she went on to actually get her her BA degree in history at, at Cal State Channel Islands, which is uh, near near here in Camarillo. And, and so I asked her, you know, what what made you continue to go go on and uh, get in get your uh, your degree? And she said, you know, David, I'm I'm retired. I don't need this degree. I'm not even going to use it. But I it, it was kind of like I didn't want want them to win. I know what they were trying to do. You know, they were trying to get me to drop out of school and and I didn't want them to win. And I also I, I maintain my Spanish. <laughs> so there's that sort of everyday resistance, right, that even as a as a fourth grader, she was feeling this humiliation and, and was put through that. But she held on to her Spanish. She you know, she went on to say, I just knew I just knew where I can speak it, you know, and when and and who and always mindful of who was around that uh, wasn't going to try and punish me for for keeping my language. Wow, that's um, powerful. You know, so the, the so that's one way. But what we have uh, the what what I what I look at in chapter five is sort of the after World War Two is when we have more of a African American presence in Oxnard because of the World War II economy. There's a naval base here in Port Wainimi. And so a lot of African Americans are moving into the area. And these are not necessarily like working class, working poor African Americans. They are formally educated. Uh, some of them are engineers. Uh, they're in the military and they're moving to Oxnard. And as expected, they're being told, oh, you want to you want to purchase a home in La Colonia. And so re- the realtors are pushing them to go to La Colonia. And they're like saying, no, I want a home on the west side. Uh, I want my kids to attend schools here. And so uh, in the book, I, I go over the the establishment of the local branch of the NAACP. I cover that because it's it's important to know what they were experiencing as a community and how much it parallels what Mexican-Americans are experiencing. So the Community Service Organization is established in Oxford, and Juan Soria is is a part of that. Cesar Chavez is is here. He's organizing laborers in, in Oxnard. And so at some point, as early as 1963, the NAACP is asking the Oxnard School Board to desegregate Oxnard schools. And they are pleading and they're coming up even with plans, with effective ways to desegregate the district, but it all falls on deaf ears. Uh, For seven years, they ignore it, they ignore it. And what we see is that Mexican-Americans or Chicanas and Chicanas with uh, the way they were identifying at the time. And African-Americans were coming together, though they faced discrimination in housing, 
discrimination in employment. The one thing that brings these two communities uh, together is the segregation of their children in school. And they begin to fight and support each other at board meetings and to ask the, the, uh, the school board to desegregate Oxnard schools. Because by this time, after 1940, you have those schools that you mentioned on the, on the east side, which is uh, Rose Avenue. Uh, and, and so in and, and Juanita School and so in Ramona School. And so those those are are heavily in within you know eighty to ninety percent uh, Mexican American and African American schools. So the imbalance, or what they call a racial imbalance, was very much obvious uh, by nineteen seventy, and it was Juan Soria that ultimately files this lawsuit on behalf of uh, Mexican American and African American plaintiffs. And so we have these moments of coalition between these communities, and it also includes whites. You know, there was also supportive whites. Illegal women voters was very much in support of uh, filing the lawsuit against the the district. So you have a multiracial coalition that wants to see Oxnard schools uh, be desegregated. Yeah, that's such a great part of... Uh, this story, and I think it's so important as well to the broader narrative of uh, you know American civil rights history and social justice history is right again these coalitions that are formed, and particularly between you know black and brown communities. Uh, I think so much has you know been written in media and press in, in recent decades, uh, particularly with you know discussions around immigration and you know the challenges of the demographic transition that occur in black and brown. Uh, communities. Um, and, you know, here we have very clear historical examples, right, of, of right. shared struggles, uh, shared experiences that lead to shared struggles, uh, right, for social justice between these communities. I think it's such a just a, again, key part of, of the narrative that, you know, there, there's, there is scholarship on this. But again, as you know, I'm usually teaching it in my classes and, and uh, exp- right, really trying to make this connection, this understanding of students of how, you know, yes, there are these clear, stark racial divisions, produced by segregation throughout the country, but that also communities are coming together, right, um, you know, to fight this injustice, right? Black, brown, white, uh, you know, of course, uh, Jewish brothers and sisters are always very important to the civil rights struggle, particularly mm-hmm. for Mexican-Americans uh, in Southern California. So, yes, I mean, just such an important part of that narrative and, and this history. Yeah, and, and I think that Oxnard, uh, as a, you know, lends itself to to that to those coalitions very much its history shows that that there was these different coalitions though there was also tension it's never perfect but there are there are very much uh, moments of solidarity as well certainly uh, well, I want to be very respectful of your time because I know that both you and I have children running around in, in our homes. <laughs> We've been very lucky to avoid, I think, interruptions. But I wanted you to bring a a contemporary uh, kind of lesson from the importance of your scholarship. You know, I mentioned in particular that my dad had been assistant principal at uh, Haydock uh, Middle School, and I believe that was from like 86 to uh, 89 or something around there. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So using that as an example, can you tell us what, what has been the impact of your book on the Oxnard community? Well, it's 
you know, it's been received very well. I I think that it it shows that the community is is wanting, is thirsty for a more critical version of our cities and, and not just Oxnard, but just, you know, any community study. We can't just go on these kind of popular press or self-published books that are not reviewed. And, you know, uh, because what happens then is that you, what we know about Oxnard um, is, is pretty much by those that are, that are, you know, the descendants of what they call the pioneer families. And so it's, it's, it's a very uncritical view of the development of the city. And so as I've been doing talks around town at the local libraries, at the community colleges or Cal State Channel Islands, you know, in and around Oxnard, um, there's been a, a, you know, large crowds. And and I think they have really appreciated the, you know, uh, this book in part because they see themselves in it. They see themselves in particular in the interviews and, and at every book talk that I've done, uh, people come up to me and say, you know, uh, the story of Antonia, the story of Joe Mendoza, or uh, any of the interviewees uh, that are quoted in the book, they said, I lived through that. I remember that. Or, you know, or my tia went through that. Or, I rem- or you know, my abuelo tells me these stories, too. And. And so to finally see it in a book and and that it, it's here, it kind of makes it very real for people. And, and I had one um, uh, one of my interviewees mention, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you're doing this because I don't want people to forget what we experienced in schools. And and I'm sure that those who did these things to our children want it don't want it to be a part of a permanent record. So, and people need to know that it needs to be documented. So I think it has been very much appreciated uh, uh, throughout. Now, I don't know if uh, some of the, you know, pioneer, so-called pioneer founding families appreciate it. I haven't heard from them, but um, it's all in the record. You know, this is all in their, in their own writing and the historical record, but in particular to Haydock, Right. Um, one one impact of the book that I've seen, and, and in some ways was unexpected. Um, I'll, I'll briefly, you know, tell you the the story. I, I received an email from a teacher, uh, a current uh, last year around May. I received an email from a teacher, a sixth grade teacher at uh, Haydock School, which is now a middle school, used to be a junior high. And she said that one of her students asked her, who is Richard B. Haydock? And, and, you know, who is our school named after? And and she says in the email, I I honestly did not know, but I told my student, why don't don't we do some research on it? And they did, and they came across my my book, and um, they started reading some of the quotes uh, that I have in the book with Haydock, where he talks about Mexican students and families and and black students and, you know, some very racist quotes. And so this really angered the student. And so she started to organize the kids in her classroom. And with the help of their teacher uh, in May of last year, they went to the board and they presented uh, a case um, citing my book to uh, begin the, to change the name of their school 
And so, you know, I when you write these books, you know, you're thinking, you know, it's primarily a college, you know, undergrads, but never did I think sixth graders, you know, um, would be would be reading the book. And and so that's been just very humbling for me that that they feel empowered by it, because honestly, when I was in school, I, I never felt empowered by history. If anything, it was something I didn't want to do. It, it, it was the typical. This is boring. Why does this matter? And so it's it's kind of amazing that I ended up being a historian and getting a Ph.D. in history. Uh, but, you know, it, it it's something changed along my own academic track. And I'm so like humbled by the fact that at an early age that these sixth grade students mobilized themselves and they felt empowered by what they were reading enough to go to the board and ask them to change the name of their school. And that's taking ownership taking ownership of your community history, your community narrative, and they're inspired to learn and they're learning something. So that's that's been a, a very uh, humbling experience uh, for me. And I'm glad to uh, tell you that, that the board uh, did um, vote unanimously after that presentation by the students to begin the process of changing the name and as far as I know, they are continuing with that, and I believe uh, they formed a committee to begin that process of selecting a new name for, for Haydock. Uh, the one thing that I have told uh, the board, and because uh, I also went to speak before the board uh, in support of these students and, and in support of changing the name, that it's, it's not about erasing Haydock's name. I think that all our history needs to be known and needs to be there. If, if anything, I suggested that we should have um, some sort of exhibit uh, with pictures and a narrative uh, about why the name had to be changed in the first place and how that came about. Uh, as a historian, I'm not trying to hide anything. I'm, I, if anything, it's about having a more complete picture. And Haydock was a very complicated uh, educator. Uh, at the same time, he was very uh, much um, a racist man against Mexicans in particular and African-Americans. Uh, he, uh, he was very much welcoming of the Japanese and the Chinese students. And in fact, at his retirement in 1939, the Japanese community threw him a party and they celebrated him. So the Japanese uh, American community in Oxford had a very different view of Haydock. And I can tell you that there nowhere in the historical record does it show that the Mexican community threw him a party. <laughs> and and you know it would have been a good one too. So <laughs> Yeah, and well that's right. I mean that's and that's fascinating, right? To show the the complications of of people of aid, particularly with California's history. Uh, that is quite an anomaly to have that type of, um, I guess you could say, liberal view in regards to you know Japanese um, folk who themselves were you know endured the brunt of so much racism throughout California's history. But uh, I just think what an amazing story of, uh, as you've pointed out, this you know the name change of Haydock uh, represents of how history empowers can empower yeah. right these and can empower students when they're taught the history that applies to them. And I'm thinking of my, my own daughters who, um, in, in the high school that they attend right now, and one of the hallways, there's this 
big, huge um, exhibit that's, uh, you know, like just the full size of the walls all about, you know, uh, American constitutional history and American heritage, right, framed through the founding generation. And I'm just thinking how, how much more powerful that would be in, in regards to like this case, right? Not erase the history of Haydock, but, you know, build a, you know, a nice big exhibit, right, that covers the history of the segregation, right, of Mexican-Americans and African-Americans and, and Oxnard that, that details, right, the complexity, you know, of the past, uh, you know, for the students, right, and what that, what that might do, right, in spurring, right. again, their desire, right, to, as you've already pointed out, complete their education, maintain, you know, their culture, uh, their language, right, and also, most importantly, of course, right, contribute, right, become in civically engaged and feel that they themselves are empowered, right, to do something, to affect positive change. Yeah, yeah. So thank you so much for that. And again, just thanks for your time. Um, uh, it's been great for us to connect. Uh, and I'm just so glad to hear of, you know, how busy you've been, you know, presenting this book, you know, in the community and of course, winning the awards, you know, for the book, it is, is very well deserved. So David, thank you again for uh, your time and for coming on to New Books and Latino Studies. No, thank you so much for the kind invitation. And, uh, you know, this has, it's been great to discuss it with you. And I also appreciate your insights. Uh, in particular, because you're also very familiar with Oxnard. I, I didn't know that you had lived here till age 10. So um, I hope that this makes a per this book is making a personal connection with you, uh, you know, in, in that regard. But thank you for having me. I've truly enjoyed this discussion.